Psalms, if you will. Psalms. I thought today I'd um, share a few thoughts about God, the universe, man, life, death, and the fountain of youth. And uh, if I can throw a couple of other things in along the way, I will, but that might do us just to kick us off. Psalm 33. So we're back in the Old Testament. In fact, this almost looks like a, the gospel according to Psalms when you start to think about it. I mean, back in Bible days, of course, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Paul the Apostle and so on, they didn't have a New Testament, nothing. All they had was the Old Testament. And they would use Old Testament scriptures, just as we're doing now, perhaps. Uh, and that, would be the, that, would, that was all they actually had to offer. Uh, it was only later on they started to write down and eventually produced the New Testament. So Psalm 33, see how far we get into this. Uh, verse, uh, verse 6, just to start us off today. Verse 6, uh, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Um, that verse alone just sort of leaves me a bit flabbergasted. Uh, the word by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Everything you see up there, every star, every constellation, every massive, uh, you know, gas cloud up there, every nebula that perhaps you see in a Time magazine or something or other on YouTube or something, every single thing you see out there, our sun, the moon, the planets, the uh, amazing array of different objects we have in our solar system and so on, all of it was made by God. In fact, it was made by his word which is a strange thing to say. He simply spoke the word and it happened. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus Christ, when he came, was the word of God made flesh. It says all things were made by him and for him. He made all of that stuff out there. In another verse, it says for his pleasure. He just enjoyed it. He was having fun. It was a bit quiet one Saturday afternoon in heaven. He decided, I think I'll make the universe. And away he went. And uh, we, we still enjoy them immensely today. It's just amazing as you look out there. The word of the Lord were made by God. It says all the host of them were by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters and the, of the heap together into a heap. Sorry. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. And let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It says, let everybody stand in awe of him. And uh, I don't know if you're a bit like me, but I, I just love the whole kind of universe thing, the stars, the galaxies, you know, the nebula and so forth. Um, anyone ever done uh, the Perth Observatory, the night observatory? A couple of people, yes. My wife, she had to come with me because I was going. It's just, a, I mean, it's just a little thing you do, I, you know, uh, go up there and they've got uh, some decent uh, telescopes and you can sit up there and look out at the stars and the planets and what have you and they'll line up for you perhaps uh, Jupiter and, uh, and they line it up there for you and they say right, right at the moment we've got these three moons passing its face and you're just watching it in front of your eyes or there's Saturn over there or there's Mars over there I mean uh, it's just absolutely really good fun what God has done let alone if you sort of see a little further out beyond our galaxy. Uh, one of the things that I fell in love with was what they call the stoplight constellation. Who knows what I'm talking about there? It's three, three stars way, way, way out. It's actually at the bottom of the Southern Cross. 
and uh, called the Jewel Box, which is a, a reference to a very, very spectacular area of space. And there are three stars, and they are almost literally red, yellow, and green. Almost literally. I mean, you could use a little bit of poetic license there. And you look at these things and you think, I wonder if God sat there and thought, I'll make some stoplights in heaven. That'll give them a giggle later on. Um, because they're there. And you kind of think, it's just a remarkable what is out there. I mean, I always forget the number of stars in space, 100 uh, billion trillion, I think is the current estimate. And that's just an estimate. It goes out there for 13 billion light years kind of thing. We haven't found the back wall of space yet. We don't know where it is. Um, and there are just so many things out there that are just beyond our comprehension. And, and we are just, if you like, little particles of stardust you know, shaped together on planet Earth. Some better looking than others and whatever. But anyway, little bits of stardust. And he says here, let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. I stand in awe. I look at what I see out there and I think, far out by comparison, I'm a grasshopper. That's how awe-inspiring this is. Psalm 19, back a little bit if you will. Psalm 19. Maybe I think too much about these things. I don't know. I'm sure others do as well. Psalm 19, verse 1. Uh, uh, verse 1. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them has he set a tabernacle for the sun, and so on. And in this little passage here, he says, all the stuff you see out there is actually God's handiwork. It's, you know, perhaps you have a, a craft hobby of some sort or other, and perhaps you maybe make macrame and you hang it up on the back patio or something or other, or maybe you're a painter and you maybe do a painting, a lovely painting of something or other, and you hang it up in your lounge room or something. Uh, or maybe, uh, I'm trying to think, what well, I, I think my skill set extends perhaps to just doing a little bit of Lego with the grandchildren or something or other, which is not very impressive. But you know what I'm saying, uh, that some people certainly are skilled, and uh, you hang it up, and you they like to see you put your name across the bottom, pro heart or something or other. And that's, if you like, your signature. You know, you only have to look at a pro heart painting, and you know straight away, that's pro heart, you know, uh, and other artists and so forth, very skillful people, no question. And what he's saying here is, surely if you look out at space and you see the amazing universe out there, you can see the fingerprint of God in every possible direction. Only God can do stuff like that. Um, back over to Psalm 33 just for a moment. We were there, I know, but I want to go back for a second. And the Bible tells us in that passage that therefore nobody has an excuse. You can't say, I don't know anything about God. Why do you think all of the cultures around the world eventually decide to worship some sort of a God they create? I know they make images and statues and totem poles and what have you, and they've got uh, legends about, I'm trying to think what the Australian ones are, things like the Woggle, I'm trying to think what else we have now, uh, Rainbow Serpent and so on. Uh, other countries have their own particular beliefs and legends and what have you because everybody concluded when they sat and thought about it long enough, there is a God out there. Somebody created all of this. Somebody made it. Somebody made 
you know, uh, whales and dolphins and, uh, you know, fish under the sea, even, you know, uh, spiders. Somebody had to make spiders. Did you see they've discovered seven new spider species this week? I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? Seven new spider species. Did you didn't see that? And they call one of them the Nemo spider. Nemo spider. It's a tiny little jewel spider. And the reason they called it a Nemo spider was because on its back it has orange and white stripes like Nemo. I don't I remember the Latin name, Maluchia Nemo or something or other. I mean, it was just, it's just amazing. We're still discovering stuff. I mean, just a few weeks ago, they discovered another type of whale just off the coast of Mexico. Anyone see that story? Yes, okay. Two of you. Thank you. Otherwise, you're going to start thinking, I'm lying. Uh, a new whale, it's a beaked whale, and, they, uh, and they've given it a name. I can't remember what they call it now, Harry's Beaked Whale or something or other. And uh, this beaked whale is quite a large creature, as you might imagine. It's in large pods and so forth, as they usually are. Why do I find that fascinating? It's because you, it's really hard to hide whales. They're really, really big. How did we not notice this for the last 10,000 years? They discovered another one last year in the Pacific. I mean, don't get me wrong, I know. They're in the ocean, and fair enough. It is a bit hard to find them sometimes, but we have boats and ships and marine biologists. Why are we paying all these marine biologists if they haven't discovered everything yet? I mean, I can understand the insect guys saying I've discovered seven new spiders because insects are really small. It does take a lot more work to find insects. I know that. But we are still discovering stuff all the time. A series of, you know, a species of creature they found at the bottom of the oceans there next to the volcanoes, sub, uh, sub-ocean volcanoes there, which live in temperatures of, I can't remember the temperature now, but 132 degrees C or something or other, and dreadfully, you know, toxic environment, you know, sulfuric acid and so on, all spewing out. And these things thrive there. They think far out. Only God could have created all that. Anyone done the dolphin swim down at uh, uh, Coburn Sound? Swim with the dolphins? Just you and me, Chris. You and I are the only naturalists here, Chris. No, I didn't choose it either. My kids chose it for me. I wondered whether they might have a little plan afoot, you know, see if granddad goes and then collect. Um, but no, it didn't happen. You swim with the dolphins down there. It's just, it's just amazing. I mean, they, they swim in and out of you the whole time, up and down around you, just off the shore at Quinana, or where I live at, uh, you know, Munster down there. And these dolphins, you can actually hear them talking. You were not talking, sorry. They're clicking at a very high-pitched clicking sound, you know. Sounds a bit like that. And no, I thought Skippy used to do that. But apparently that's not true. And what it is is, of course, it's the dolphin's echolocation system. As they're swimming in and around you, they can shut their eyes because they can see everything by watching the return echoes off your shape. Sharks. I was, we were down there and one of the ladies said, don't forget to switch on the shark, you know, repellent thing. You know, I'm spraying myself with sunscreen. Thing. This might help. This might help. Um, but she said, oh, and I didn't bother initially. She said, oh, no, no, no. Someone got bitten by a shark here two years ago on the dolphin tour. I thought, we are definitely switching on the shark machine. And I said, you know, the, the, there's a, they put a tail thing, an antenna thing on the first person and an antenna thing on the last person. And the electrical impulses from that deter the sharks. 
And if you forget to switch it off when you get out of the water, you get a boot from it. It's nasty. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I wasn't gloating, but it was just a, just happened to one of the other people. Um, and as they're doing it, I'm thinking, why, why does that work? It's all oh, because sharks, of course, have electrolocation system. They have a system of detecting magnetic fields around people. And if we can disrupt that with the electricity that we're sending out, then it completely messes them up. That's why sharks like to attack in uh, murky water. They don't actually like clear water. They've got a big hunting advantage if they attack in murky water. And so I was making sure I was right next to the lady with the, you know, the shark antenna, I can tell you right now. And, of course, that's what the Lord's telling us here. He says, haven't you noticed all the stuff on planet Earth? Haven't you had a good look around? Haven't you seen the beauty of the flowers? Who knows what the most uh, flora-diverse place on Earth is? Western Australia. And the third most flora-diverse place on Earth is? Western Australia again. Our first one is up north near Eniabra. Our second one is down south near the Prongrubs. We have over, they say, nearly 14,000 uh, native wildflowers. I don't know the exact number. I mean, when I quote a lot of these, you know, topics, I, I, I can't always remember the exact number and I always just have a quick look to see what Brian's thinking in the corner there. But I remember <laughs> his speciality is kangaroos, so I never comment on kangaroos when I come to Morley. Oh, well, well, no, we won't come. They're, they're just all, all just a fascinating, fascinating planet on which we live. Astonishing. You've been watching the photos coming off Mars recently? Just beautiful, aren't they? Amazing. Beautiful in the sense of they're rubbish. They're just rocks, red rocks in every direction. It looks like Port Hedland, only worse, <laughs> really worse. And you kind of think, we live on a paradise, planet Earth. You know, whether it's, uh, I mean, I got in spud sheet yesterday, I think it was, you can have a look around, you know, mangoes and white peaches and, you know, picked up a bunch of bananas, a bunch of grapes. Grapes are cheap at the moment, end of the season. And I'm thinking to myself, all these amazing flavors and sensations that we enjoy on planet Earth. The Bible says that God gave us all these fruits, all these things. God decided that was the plan. And he says, haven't you noticed there is no place where this information hasn't gotten out there. It's all over the world. You should have all noticed by now there is a God. Go live on Mars, check it out. Come back, live on Earth, check it out. Not quite sure. Go back to Mars again, check it out. God made everything you see. And we're actually the pinnacle of that creation he decided upon. Back to Psalm 33, if you will, for a moment. Actually, I'm going to get lost in time here, if I'm not careful. Psalm 33, one verse this time, uh, Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his hearts to all generations. Uh, when God decides he's going to do something, it goes on forever and ever. It just continues. It doesn't stop. You know, well, we, we do things that it tends to be fairly short-lived, but God does things which seem to be continuous. Uh, the counsel there is the word, Hebrew word meaning etzah. It means a plan. And what it's describing here is that God has a plan, the counsel of God, God lasts forever, the plan of God. You know, when you're doing something, you have to have a plan. 
you think to yourself, I'll make some curtains. Surely you sit down first with a paper and a bit of a pencil and paper and you say, oh, they're going to be this long and this wide and the track will go here and so on. Or maybe you're planning a garden or maybe you're building your first house and you, you agonise over the plans, don't you? I think we've all done it. Uh, you agonise over the plans and you, oh, should I make the laundry a little bit bigger and uh, should I put the, the door to the second bedroom here or there? What's going to work best? You evaluate it all. And that's exactly the same with God. When he sat down there, he worked it all out in advance. You know, our universe, they say, has 26 constants, things like speed of light and so forth. Right through the entire universe, it's got to be exactly the same. Otherwise, the universe collapses. Gravity. Uh, I've just become fascinated with gravity recently. I don't know why. Uh, which is a silly topic to be fascinated with, but there are some good minds being fascinated with gravity. Maybe as I'm getting older, I just feel myself sinking a bit. <laughs> Things, parts of my body just seem to be, you know, held down by gravity a little more than they used to be. And you kind of look at it all and you think to yourself, what is gravity? How come we don't go spinning off the face of the earth? Where we are at about 32 degrees latitude here in Perth, you know, we're currently travelling at over 1,200 kilometres an hour. We're all spinning towards the east. Which is east? <laughs> it is east. We're all spinning at about 1,200 kilometres an hour to the east. Ugh, how come we don't all spin off? It's because there's a little force, gravity. What is gravity? They still haven't worked it out. Is it particles? Is it waves? Is it, is it waves of particles? I have a theory. I think it's just because... Some things are really heavy. But anyway, that's my theory on gravity. Go to another scripture, if you will, Psalm 14. Gee, I haven't gotten very far, have I? I promised you God, the universe, man, life, death, and the fountain of life. And I've only got one day to produce this. Psalm 14. There's so much we could say that goes without saying. Um, and yet despite the fact that according to God, nobody has an excuse to see him in creation, it tells us here in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And they're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No not one. And uh, God laments in this little psalm here the fact that even though they can see it all, the first problem is he says many of them just decide they're risen to God. And you think that perhaps is a very modern thing, perhaps 21st century or 20th century, you know, atheism, you know, uh, perhaps some of the philosophies that derive from that communism and, and so on and so on. But according to the Bible, no, no, this has been around for thousands and thousands of years that people would get up and look at a, you know, a, a you know, a rabbit or, you know, a cow in the paddock or something rather and decide, no, no, that just came here. There isn't a God. And it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's foolish to reach that conclusion. Sometimes people say to me, oh, the scientists don't believe there's a God. I saw a recent uh, statistic in America, over half the qualified scientists in America, for example, do believe there's a God. Now, I'm not going to discuss which part of that group is which. And certainly in Australia, I suspect it's a lot less than that. But in the Bible teaches us it's actually the fool that says there's no God, uh, that thinks he knows everything. You know, I had a chat the other day. I was talking to a fellow down south, his um, family. I've got to be careful what I say. I know, but 
the young man concerned was just doing a science degree and was a little bit full of himself. And, uh, and I, I nearly said something. I thought, oh, don't say anything. Bite your tongue. Bite your tongue. Because I thought, do you know 1% of all knowledge? Do you know 1% of 1% of all knowledge? Do you know 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% on 1% of all knowledge? The answer almost certainly is no. So you know, you, what you don't know of all the things, I mean, for example, I said, who was Prime Minister in Australia in 1937? I'm guessing no one here would know. What was his daughter's name? I'm guessing no one here would know. What was her birthday? No one here would know. I mean, the amount of information that you don't know is astonishing. Couldn't God be in that 99.9999% of stuff you don't know? And yet we arrogantly sit there saying, no, no, I know a bunch of stuff right down this end of the scale, and I've concluded there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, in Psalm here, 14, verse 3, they're all together gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And the tragedy is that uh, the less that we think there is a God, the more likely we are perhaps to drift off in directions which are uh, against God, immoral and so forth. And the Bible warns us here, human condition is sadly the opposite to God's condition. God's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. He's every, every possible part of him is good. And it says here as humans, we've, we've lapsed the other way. We've drifted the wrong way. Uh, and you can try to be good. You can try to do as good as you can. But you will never be really, really good. You'll never be perfect like God. And that's the little message here. Psalm 39. <coughs> Psalm 39, verse 4. Lord, make me to know the measure of mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Uh, just stop there for a moment. Lord, uh, would you please keep reminding me how insignificant, how frail I am? Can you please just keep reminding me how limited my lifespan on earth is? That's what he's asking God to remind him. He goes on and he says, verse 5, Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth. And my age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. And he says, my lifespan is like a, a handbreadth. That's all it is in eternity. And uh, the more you think about this, the more depressing it is that you are here for a very, very short space of time. An enormous God, a wonderful universe, an amazing planet with all sorts of good stuff on it. But you're only here for a short time to enjoy it. Uh, the Bible teaches us elsewhere, you get about 70 or 80 years. It says uh, it is given unto man three score years plus 10, 70, or four score years, 70 or 80. And it's funny, the Australian average at the moment, the life expectancy of a male at the moment is 81 years, and for a female is 84 years in Australia. Uh, so... And they say, by the way, that that will actually be the best we ever get. Because unfortunately, the next generation, which is kind of the my-ish generation after, we got right into fast foods and wrecked ourselves early. And so we probably won't live as long, they say. So the prediction in the Bible of 70 or 80 years, it's funny because that was written 3,000 years ago. 
long before massive pharmaceutical companies and medical research institutes and, uh, you know, doctors and scientists and what have you, who do a good job, they do the best they can, no question there. But long before all of that, we were told we'd get about 70 or 80 years. So what are the billions and billions and billions of dollars that we spend on all of this effort to extend life actually achieving? Well, perhaps a little bit, but quite often, of course, it's um, uh, length of life at the expense of quality of life, which is a little bit sad there. And he goes and he tells us in verse uh, uh, th- 5, Behold, thou hast made my days a handbreadth, my ages is nothing before thee. Verily, every man in his best state is altogether vanity. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. And uh, the psalmist here starts to uh, open up to us about some things which are, in one sense, they're obvious, but in another sense, it doesn't hurt you to sit and reflect on them from time to time. The first one he says is, your very, very best condition in life is actually pretty useless. And no matter how good you get, you could be a pop star, you know, you could be a, you know, someone who is idolized throughout the teenage world, all over the world. And 50 years later, you'll just be an old gray man with a big paunch. That's all you'll be. Have a look at the rolling stars or maybe <laughs> other different characters. I mean, I'm Rolling Stones, did I? Oh, stars, I said so. <laughs> the Rolling Stones and so on. And of course, he's true. He's right. He's absolutely right. In the very best condition you are, you're actually still quite fragile. Maybe someone that's a, an amazing sports person. You know, someone that can, the first guy to run the, you know, the four minute mile, Bannister, I think his name was, you know, uh, an amazing sort of a fellow or co or one of those uh, great, great athletes and so forth. And yet they just get old and they just get feeble and weak. Uh, perhaps one of the uh, the wealthy people in the world. Exactly the same thing happens. You can make tons and tons of money, but you're still just getting old. I was looking at a photo the other day of uh, is someone ringing me. Might be for you, Simon. Might be. I switched it to silent, but I didn't switch it off. I normally put the uh, airplane thing on. Yeah. When I can find it. Now, of course. You could be someone that's made a lot of money. You know, I was, I was looking the other day at, um, uh, you know, an interview with Warren Buffett. You know, who knows Warren Buffett? Uh, the Oracle of Omaha, one of the wealthiest guys in America. I don't know what he's currently rated at. He's made billions and billions of money. I think at one stage there he's worth about a hundred billion dollars, something like that. It was a lot of money anyway. I mean, after you, after you get past two million dollars, surely it's all irrelevant. And he decided he'd made so much money and he sat down and did a quick calculation that even if he, if he lived another 15 years, that he would have to spend his money at some massive rate, like $4 million a second to get rid of it. And he decided, well, this is crazy. Or was it a minute? Maybe someone can requote that one for me. And he decided that was madness. And so in his eighties now he decided, this is ridiculous. Why have I made all this money? And so he decided he would simply give it all away. And he's given it away to charities. Not all of it, sorry. I think about 80 or 90% of it. Gave it away to charities. I mean, good on him. God bless him. But he suddenly realized how fruitless and how empty it is. He just can't do stuff with it. Uh, this is part of the search of humanity. What are we here for? What is the point of it? I can see the uh, fingerprint of God out in space there. I can see the amazing creation that he's put on the planet Earth. I can see the difference between being on Mars and living on Earth. It's pretty obvious. 
What's it all for? I only live for a very short space of time. And yes, I know I'm a sinner. I'm hopeless. In the same chapter, we read down in verse 11. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. Vanity there doesn't mean vain. In that sense, it means uh, useless, fragile, empty. Vanity. Every man is vanity, useless. He goes on and he says uh, in verse uh, 12 there, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. He says, God, are you prepared to spare me, to find some way for me so that I'm not just going to be like every other creature on planet Earth? Um, Again, we're just going to keep moving here over to uh, uh, Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Psalm 16 and down in verse 11, just one verse I want here. Uh, Thou wilt show me the path of life, and in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And all the people said, if you find God, if you can actually find this pathway, this hidden pathway to God, he says there's life there at the end of that pathway. And not only life, he says, if you find this pathway to God, there are pleasures forevermore. It's eternal. It goes on forever and ever and ever. Jesus came on the scene and described how he'd come to bring us life and that more abundant. He talked about how he is the way, the truth, and the life. He described how he's the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And this is what it's, this is the uh, amazing thing that God promises. Although God paints this picture of our hopeless estate, He also gives us little hints and clues, even throughout the Old, Old Testament here, that there is actually a pathway to find that will lead you to life. I'm going to go to another verse in uh, Psalm 25, if you will, just quickly moving along. Sorry. Psalm 25. Verse four. We read here, Psalm 25, verse 4, Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. And uh, the psalmist here is saying, I've, there is this pathway somewhere. There's this little secret track you can find that will lead to life. And he says, show it to me, Lord. Teach it to me. Will you please show me? Lead me into thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and the loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Uh, A little bit further down in verse 9. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. We discover here that the first secret of finding God is is meek, to be meek. Uh, Meek meek doesn't mean you're you're a doormat and people walk all over you. Meek means that you are humble. It means that you are teachable. You can be an Arnie Schwarzenegger and still be meek. Uh, the meek is someone who is prepared to listen to God and do what he says. He says, why is that important? He says, because the meek will he show his way. He's going to show the meek his way. A little further down in verse uh, uh, 10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. 
Uh, we learn here that uh, the weight of this secret pathway is not only meekness, but we've got to do God's instructions, follow his covenants. We've got to follow his testimonies, his requirements. There's no much point saying, I'm teachable, but when God says, I want you to get, repent and get baptized and get filled with the Spirit, we say, no, I don't want to do that. We've actually got to follow through. Uh, we read on in another uh, little passage here down at the end, verse 14. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. We learn here again that this pathway is actually a secret. It's something hidden. It's something which God knows that he can show us, he can teach us, but if we're proud, arrogant, disobedient, we won't actually find it. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. We read there the next step in this process is we've got to actually fear what God says. We've got to have respect to what God says. Otherwise, it just won't work. Psalm 36, and I will get out of Psalms in just a moment. Now, we've talked a lot about God and the universe, man, life, death, and so forth. And you're probably saying to yourself, oh, where's the fountain of youth? I haven't seen that yet. Uh-huh, you haven't read Psalm 36. Psalm 36, verse 9. Uh, For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see the light. Uh, we read here that God is actually got available, this fountain of life. And it's a funny thing, you know, uh, I was doing a bit of research on it, and uh, the fountain of youth is something which has been around in human popular culture for thousands of years. Uh, there's a whole, uh, you know, you can read a whole swathe of history. I mean, the, you know, going back to Herodotus, the uh, great historian, 400 BC or so, uh, talked about the fountain of youth, which was, uh, you know, known of a certain tribe of people. I won't go into it. We're talking places like Greece and Italy and so forth, uh, those kinds of southern European locations. It was supposed to be there. It was supposed to also be in the Middle East somewhere. And different cultures have had different views. Uh, in the great uh, age of exploration, the 1500s and the 1600s AD, they had become convinced that the ultimate prize was finding the fountain of youth probably in Central America. And you wouldn't believe that now, would you? Think about the death and dying over there. Central America and great uh, Spanish and Portuguese explorers and what have you went over there. Uh, I won't say with the sole purpose of finding the fountain of youth, but it was very high on the agenda. It was also very high in popular culture. There's a lot of um, uh, paintings and uh, ivory carvings, that sort of thing, which depict finding this mystical fountain of youth somewhere in the world. At one stage when they got to Central America and they'd had a look around everywhere and they, nobody could find the fountain of youth, they started branching up north and then they discovered the American Indians also had a culture in which they believed there was a, an amazing fountain of youth in the land of Bimini and they continued to explore there thinking, oh, the fountain of youth is here somewhere. We just haven't quite found it yet. And guess what? It was here the whole time. It was always there but they were just looking in the wrong place. It's not something secular. It's something spiritual. It's from God. It's a pathway from God. We call it the fountain of youth and all of the different, uh, you know, legends and what have you associated with it usually talk about how people go down into the fountain of youth, an old, old person, and they emerge the other side, you know, 18 again. And they go in with their sicknesses and they come out healthy and they go in with their bad appetites and they come out to a feast. That is a very common theme in that sort of, uh, popular, as I say, mythology and so on. In the Bible, we see clearly here, Psalm 36, that God expresses it this way. Verse 9 again. With thee 
is the fountain of life. With God himself, there is the fountain of life. He's able to give you everlasting life. He's able to heal you of every condition. He's able to give you a permanence instead of this handbreadth existence you currently now have. Over again, I'm going to just uh, perhaps move along. Revelation chapter 22. And we need to start looking for a few scriptures to close on here. Revelation 22. So we're at the last book in the Bible here, and it's a, a fairly enigmatic sort of a book. It's filled with symbolic references and uh, what have you. Um, and it concludes the very last chapter of the very last book, Revelation chapter 22, concludes in uh, with this story here. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And uh, John is given a vision here of a physical representation of what God has on offer. And he says it's like a river of water of life, clear as crystal. It's funny, in our life on planet Earth, it's okay, it's pretty clear when you're young and healthy, but as you get older, you start to creak and groan and fall apart a little bit. It's not quite as clear as crystal anymore, isn't it? Uh, you start to find you can't, you don't jump fences anymore, you find the gate and walk through. <laughs> you know, you switch lights on before you try and figure out where the fridge is and so on. All sorts of things because it's not quite as clear as crystal. You know, maybe as you get older, they start testing you for your eyesight after a while. You know, making sure that you can still see the road. We know all those sorts of things. That makes sense. Because in the human condition, we've discovered that life actually slowly degrades. Slowly degrades until eventually you meet your maker. And he says, well, I'm offering you one that is clear as crystal. It just is wonderfully perfect forever. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We read here in verse 2, in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river, there are the tree of life which bear twelve manner of fruits and yielded a fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In other words, associated with this river of life is, is complete deliverance, complete healing, uh, complete rest, restoration of everything. When Jesus comes back, uh, the Bible describes in Malachi, it says he comes back with healing in his wings. Who remembers that scripture? It's in, in Malachi there. Healing in his wings. You know, we struggle with our, we know the promises about God healing us and blessing us, and but we struggle with our carbuncle perhaps or maybe with our, you know, uh, touch of angina or something or other. Uh, but when Jesus comes back, it all gets healed instantly. Absolutely everything. He says here for the healing of the nations in verse 3, and there was no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it and his servant shall serve him. And they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. No more curse and uh, all the things that we associate with planet earth will be gone in that sense. A little further down in the same passage, we read in verse 17. Verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that is a thirst say, come. Uh, and whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So there's an invitation in the Bible to come to this, as it were, fountain of youth, to take of God's water freely. Back in verse 5, And they, there shall be no night there, neither shall there be a candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. 
and all the people said. I'm looking forward to getting my crown. I'm looking forward to getting my scepter, whatever it is you get when you get to be there. Because he says we're going to reign forever and ever, far from a human condition where we just slowly uh, fade with a handbreadth of life. He says you're going to be in a situation with a completely new body and you're going to reign forever. Back to the Gospel of John just for a moment. How am I going for time? Just quickly, John chapter 4. Because I want to go to things that Jesus said about this fountain of life just in finishing today because we know that whatever message God had, even though it was a secret, as we read a moment ago back in Psalms, that was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's revealed. It's openly spoken about. It's clarified. There is no doubt anymore what the meaning was. And Jesus himself is the one that gives us the information on this fountain of youth, this river of life. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a lady there. We won't go through the whole story, but uh, Jesus is talking to a lady, and he says in verse 7, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith to her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away to the city to buy meat. And then saith the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And Jesus now begins to clarify this whole message. Uh, the well of water there, the well is the Greek word pagan. It means a fountain, uh, fountain of water. And so he says, you're going to, would you like to get the fountain of water which will flow out of you for eternity? Because it's on offer here. Uh, the lady was quite confused, and I won't go through the rest of her questioning, but Jesus explained a little later on in chapter 7, just as our very final verse today. Chapter 7, the meaning of all of this. Now, Jesus attends a festival in his local area. It's a seven-day-long festival. Everyone's been eating and drinking and so on, I'm sure. And in verse 37, it says, On the last day, the seventh day, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried or shouted, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And uh, we get this same concept that Jesus has raised back in chapter 4, that there is a way to find this river of water, this river of life, this fountain of youth, as it were. And uh, if you are thirsty for God, he's happy to give it to you. If you're not thirsty for God, he's not going to bother you. He won't upset you. But if you're thirsty for God, he's happy to give it for you. But you've got to be thirsty. And he says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, for out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, if there was no further information given, then 
we might be, again, stuck with the problem of speculating what on earth this fountain of youth is. What is, the, what is, the, what is this really describing in practical terms? Fortunately for us, the Apostle John decided that he better put in an explanation just in case anybody was ever unsure what was meant here. Verse 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And all of a sudden, this whole story, the mystery, the secret hidden from the ages, suddenly finds fulfillment in Jesus' words here. If you're thirsty, I'm prepared to give you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life, the Spirit which will carry you into eternity. Elsewhere, the Bible teaches us that God's Spirit joins with our spirit and makes a completely new creature on the inside. It says that creature can never be destroyed. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Elsewhere he says, no, you're not, that you are sons of God. In another place he says, uh, uh, for he that is born of God, uh, you know, he describes how he can't die and so on. In fact, just over the page in chapter 10 there. And so Jesus tells us that this is what he wants to give you, the Holy Spirit. Later on we discover that people received the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago in a very simple but miraculous way. As the Holy Spirit came on them, it says, they spake with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It says the, Paul laid his hands upon them and they spoke with other tongues when they received the Spirit. Uh, it says they received the Spirit for we heard them speak with other tongues. And that's the pattern in the Bible. And that tongues experience is a bit like a, 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 a creek or a river suddenly flowing out of you. God's Spirit flows into you this way, as it were, and all of a sudden outflows praise to God in his new language, a language you can wake up every morning and pray to God again in and remind yourself that you've still got the river of life in you. You are not like the 99.9% .9 of people who ignore God, who just are happy to have a hand breadth of existence on planet Earth. We're the ones that want to have your everlasting life. And all the people say, Amen. Amen.